Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us tonight, thank you so much for being here. It's an encouragement to have you, and we hope that we can encourage you. If you would be open your Bibles to the book of Job, to the book of Job. Again, we want to welcome back our team that has been down in offering the Katrina relief down in Mississippi, and we look forward to uh, the future good that can be done there. We're thankful for the good that was done this past week. We're thankful for the individuals that gave it their time, gave it their skill, gave it their energy, and gave it their heart. Uh, we especially thank Bobby Coles, who continues to, to be the, really the driving force behind this, making opportunities available for us, and we appreciate him and his heart so much. Also, be prayerful, as within two weeks, we will already be uh, well into the campaign in Dayton, Tennessee. And let's make sure that we go into that having offered many prayers and much meditation and go with great intentions. And let's enjoy the increase that God has laid before us. But let's make sure that we have prayed and prayed and prayed. So please, if whether you're going or not, let's make sure that over the next two weeks that we offer prayer after prayer for this good work. And let's make sure that we do everything we can do for God's glory. Isn't it wonderful to think that perhaps the population of heaven will be different because of some efforts that have been laid forth over the next couple of weeks. Let's make sure that we work towards that with everything that we are and everything that we can offer. When we think about the topic of grief, it's not a question of whether or not you and I will grieve. It's a question of when. You see, all of us will experience some kind of loss in life. And any time we experience a significant loss, it will always create grief in our life. Obvious, the greater the loss, the greater the grief. This evening, I hope that the time that we spend in looking at this topic, from especially the story of Job, will be one that will be a benefit for us. The last two Sunday mornings in a Bible class in the simulcast area, we've been looking at this particular topic. I'd like to kind of bring an end to that study by looking at the great example of Job. And I'd like to remind all of us of good reason to study this. Number one, perhaps it could prepare us for that time of which we shall face in grief to make sure that we're able to approach that time as a time to grow instead of a time to move away from God. Please note this simple fact. Most people in times of grief, they either grow closer to God or they grow further away from God. Very few people stay in exactly the same spot. I want to encourage you during times of grief to go into that time of grief realizing that this is a time that you'll be tested perhaps as never before. But yet, if you'll remain faithful during this test, you very well will come out on the other side stronger than you've ever been. Let's make sure that that's our goal. And as we study tonight, we'll try to lay some simple groundwork for that to be a reality. But second, we need to be aware of this. In that great chapter where the body is of the church is likened to the, a physical body in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, we're taught there as we're many members of one body, that we all should rejoice with those that rejoice, but also that we should suffer with those that suffer, or we should weep with those that weep. I want to ask you tonight, how well do you do at doing that. Now, I'm not going to pass over that quickly. I want you to really answer that in your mind. How well do you do at suffering with individuals that suffer? When's the last time you've wept with someone who has wept? Now, we'll get into this a little bit later on in this lesson, but I'll go ahead and just lay a little bit of groundwork. We usually do a much better job of changing the subject. We do a much better job of trying to bring up something positive and just kind of moving over the topic. 
Friends, I hope that our study tonight can at least bring out the fact that it's healthy to cry whenever it's time of grief. When we look through the Scriptures, we see some of the greatest individuals that claim to be children of God and that God recognizes as children staying in times of mourning and weeping for extended periods of time. I don't know why it is about our American culture, and especially as it is heavy in the church in this particular area, we have some kind of notion that says grieving and crying is unhealthy. Friends, we can't accept a loss in a healthy fashion unless we go through the grief. We're foolish to try to go over it, around it, or under it. We must go through the valley of the shadow of death. And if an individual we love is going through the valley of the shadow of death, who am I to be the one to not walk with them? Who am I to be the one that says, let's talk about something else. I don't really want to cry with you today. Who am I to ignore it as if it doesn't even exist? Perhaps this lesson tonight will help us as we see Job. Please note, he wasn't trying to run from his grief. Job was simply grieving and could have used some good support. Had it for a little while and then lost it. I hope tonight that all of us realizes this is a lesson for all of us. Because we need to help our brothers and sisters in their times of losses, we need to be there to help them through that valley. Now, as we go into this, let me mention this, and we won't have time tonight to do much more with this, but I need to note this. Oftentimes, when we think of grief, we think of the loss of a loved one, and definitely that is a deep grief. But I need to realize that grief extends far beyond the loss of a loved one. When an individual loses a job that they have identified themselves with that particular career for an extended period of time and they have loved that job, they found their identity in that job and they lose that job, that individual will grieve the loss of their identity as it relates to that job. When an individual's health changes, and especially when there's a drastic change that creates a handicap or limitations within their life, you better believe that that individual grieves the loss of that. Every day when they strive to go throughout the day, they are reminded continuously of what they used to be and now what they are, and it creates a grief within the life of an individual. When individuals have children that perhaps have rebelled or or children that have gone in a direction that they would have never wanted their children to to go. The loss of that expectation and that hope for that child grieves the parents. You see, the point is this. We could go on and list probably over a hundred things pretty easily because it's anything that's significant in our life. When it is lost, it creates grief. And so when we talk about supporting one another, whether it be in times of divorce or times of death... Tonight we can learn about some things that surely would be most beneficial as we look at the story of Job. Let's lay some groundwork as we see the crisis that Job faced in his life. When we look in Job the first chapter, Job the first chapter, notice in verse 1 that he was a man that was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And in verse 2, he had seven sons and three daughters. And in verse 3, notice these possessions. 7,000 sheep. Let that sink in. You've never seen 7,000 sheep at one time probably, much less owned 7,000 sheep. It's amazing to think of his possessions as he had 500 
yoke of oxen. I skipped there the 3,000 camels, dropping on down 500 female donkeys and a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all of the people in the east. We're looking at the wealthiest man in his land. His possessions, if they they, uh, covered the fields, we would look across to where we'd probably say his possessions go out of sight. I can't see all of the livestock that he owns. Can you imagine all the servants that he had to be able to operate that kind of, of, of agriculture production? Can you imagine the household that he lived in that would be able, that his wealth could support, but also to support all of the servants and etc.? But then... One day something happened after God and Satan had that talk. And Satan says, you put a hedge about him. No one can touch him. And as we come down to verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on the person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And that day in 13 and 14, now let's go to 14. A messenger comes to Job as he's eating there as his children are eating in the eldest son's house. In verse 14, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they've killed all the servants, the edge of the sword, and I'm alone and here escaping. And we go to verse 16. So we see all the oxen and donkeys are are taken away now. And in, in 16, we see that fire comes down, lightning comes down, perhaps from heaven and we see that the sheep and all the servants are destroyed except for this one lone servant. In 17 we see that the Chaldeans have come in in three different bands and they've raided the camels and they also have slain the servants and there's only one left and he is coming up to tell him this. And then finally, now imagine this, this is servant after servant. When one servant has finished telling the loss, another servant tells the loss and another servant tells the loss and finally he has to come to this conclusion. Everything that has made me the wealthiest man in the land is gone. All the possessions I had are now gone. But the worst is yet to come. Notice verse 18. Another comes to him while the others are still speaking. He says, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell to the ground and he worshipped. Verse 22 tells us all this, Job did not sin nor charge God. Now as we look to the next chapter, Satan and God have another discussion and he's allowed now to touch the man, Job himself. And so he does in verse 7. He went out and he struck this second chapter, verse 7, Job with painful balls from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself potsherd which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Now, he's losing his health. Can you imagine boils on your body, all over your body? Can you imagine on the tender places of your face, on your side, the back of your legs? Can you imagine being in such a difficult health situation that you sit in ashes and you scrape yourself with, with broken pottery? That alone is a tremendous grief, the loss of health, but coupled with the loss of all the possessions and coupled with the fact that ten children have to be buried. And then we see the loss of the support of his wife. As in verse 9, his wife said, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now keep in mind, his wife too had had all these losses. 
at least most of them, and experienced all of them in, in another fashion. She too had lost all of her possessions. She too had lost her children. She too had seen her husband in a very difficult situation of health. And now Job loses a spiritually supportive wife, at least at this instant, saying, curse God and die. Friends, what I need to realize as we lay some groundwork here of the crisis is that the crisis of Job was deep. But it goes a little further than what's even revealed in the first few verses here. Go with me, if you will, to the 19th chapter. I'd like to show you just a few more losses before we move on to the aspect of comfort. In the 19th chapter, notice as we read and scan some verses beginning at 13, He has removed my brothers far from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. You see what he's describing here? Not only has his wife turned against him, but as we see this paragraph unfold, we're going to see that almost everybody in Job's life turned against him. Now, I want you to think about this as it relates to people that are grieving, and I want you to ask the question, why is it that when people are in deep grief, we often withdraw from them? It makes no sense, does it? At the times that individual needs support the most is the time that the people that say they love the individual the most are the ones that literally pull away from the individual. Notice as we read this in 13, his brothers have pulled away from him. His acquaintances have, have completely estranged him. Look in 14, my relatives have failed me and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. Now notice this description. I call for my servant. He gives me no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. Probably talking about life. My life is offensive. And I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Whether he was talking about grandchildren or or nieces and nephews. He's saying the relatives that I'm kin to. They look at me and they say, oh, look, there's Job over there. Oh, he looks terrible. I'm not having anything to do with him. Close friends that you think would come and and sit by his side. They're not sitting by his side. Notice how they are described as we look at 19 again. All my close friends abhor me and those whom I love have turned against me. You want a quick physical description of Job? Look at the next verse. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh. And if you ever wondered where the expression of speech came from, I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. You see the weakened state that he's in? Imagine the skin clinging to the bones of one that the skin is covered in boils. And imagine one sitting there alone. Because even his own servants, as he asked them to wait on him, refused to do so. Close friends abhor him, turn their face from him, reject him. Friends, why is it? Why is it that at times of crisis, we suffer so much and we allow those to suffer without offering the support that we should? What is grief? We've already discussed some tonight what grief is. At this state, I would like for us to go back to the sixth chapter and I'd like for us to hear a man that is in the depths of grief describe what grief is. 
in Job the sixth chapter. In Job the sixth chapter, listen to how he describes grief at this point. Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales. Then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. Look at verse 9. That it would please God to crush me, that He would loose His hand and cut me off. Verse 11, what strength do I have that I should hope? Or what is my end that I should prolong my life? Do you hear the words of one in grief? How heavy is your grief, Job? He says, if you could take all the sand that's in this earth on the seashores and you could place it in a balance and you could take my grief and put it in the other balance, it would immediately slam to the floor. What would be easier, Job? It would be easier to die. This hurts so much. Friends, people just should not have to walk alone at times like that. Go back, if you will, with me to the first chapter, or to the second chapter, and Job the second chapter. As we go to Job the second chapter, I'd like for you to think about what could have been, and at least for a moment of time, was Job's comfort. Do you see there in the second chapter as we look at verse 11? We learn some lessons that are very good lessons to learn from the first seven days of his friends coming to him. We're in Job, the second chapter, in verse 11. Now, when Job's friends heard of all this adversity that he had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Naamite. For they had made, now this is powerful, they made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. Now isn't that beautiful? They were going to give him permission to cry. They were going to give him permission to show the emotional expressions of what he felt. And they went. They left where they were. They left what they were doing. Whatever was the priority of their life that day, they said, It's not important than our friend needing us. We're going to make this appointment to go. And we're going to sit with that friend. And we're going to weep with that friend. And we're going to mourn with that friend. That's the appointment that we're going to make. A high priority there. In verse 12, when they raised their eyes from afar, they did not recognize him. If that tells you the physical condition that he was in. Seeing him, they did this. They lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe, sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. They sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his grief was very heavy. Isn't it interesting? how well these friends did here. And if you know the book of Job very well, you know that from this point on, after the seven days, they were terrible friends. Constantly accusing him of some evil that he must have done and how surely if he would repent, that God would quit bringing this wickedness upon him. Blaming God, blaming Job, and on and on it went. But think of the striking difference. When they made it an appointment to go to go and to weep with him, to mourn with him, to sit in silence for seven days, 
they probably were of great comfort. When did they make their mistake? When they opened their mouth. Look with me, if you will, to Job the 16th chapter. In Job the 16th chapter, Job gives a description to these friends once they opened their mouth. In Job 16, in verse 1 and 2 and following, Then Job answered and said, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? And then he says, I wish I could change things around here. I also could speak as you do if your soul was in my soul's place. I'd heap up words against you and shake my head at you, but I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. He describes himself in 8, you have shriveled me up. And as he writes on, finally, same kind of language. Look as we come to verse 20. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. What is he describing here? In this chapter, he's describing the pitiful effort that was supposed to be a comfort that was through his friends. One of the things that is a powerful lesson for us is to really stop and ask ourselves, how do I do at comforting others? Do I go? And if I go, what do I say? You know, one of the things that people that have gone through tremendous losses oftentimes say at the end, you just have to learn to ignore what people say because they'll hurt you so badly. Isn't that a shame that that's a pretty common description of Christians in times of loss? As they try to reach out to others? In just a moment, we're going to look at some cliches that people that have been in grief, they've said they'd rather not heard. But I want to read to you a a quick letter here. I grew up with a young lady, went to kindergarten on up through about 10th grade, and And in 11th grade, she was killed in an automobile accident. Several years after that, uh, where I was preaching, we were having grief seminars each year. And she heard about these, and she wrote this letter. And I'd like to just share with you the grieving process and how someone grieves for years, not for weeks. Widows' children have been asked how long they think their mother should grieve. The common answer is up to two weeks. And most widows will tell you they grieve heavily for the first year and up to three years. That's how sorely misunderstood we are about grief. And those that have been in the depths of grief say they need individuals more over the next two or three months than they need them the first two or three weeks. And so we see that oftentimes we show up at the funeral, we show up uh, that week of, and then we do nothing afterwards. And that's... that period that they need help the most. She says, Dear David, I'm so glad you're having a grief seminar. Personally, I feel the church really falls short when it comes to helping those in grief. I know visiting is very important, but we as Christians go visiting about 10 to 15 minutes at most and ask the person, call if you need me. People that are grieving don't want to call. They feel as if you should come to them. So many people think they should go immediately, but I have found out that it is 
that it's months later you need a shoulder to lean on. And she underlined months. Cindy's been gone eight years now. And this letter was written 15 years ago. Eight years this April 23rd. I miss her today just as much as I did the day of the accident. It just, it's just that you learn to go on and face the day without the one you love. People need to be very careful about what they say when you're visiting the grieving family. Sometimes it's best just to give a hug or a handshake. Just being there is what's important. What would you study in Job? They made the mistake when they started speaking. They did the best thing when they went and cried with them. Powerful lesson. Powerful lesson. Please tell your people one thing they can do is to send cards. After Cindy had been gone a year, Paul and I relived the day over that one year later. But two special friends came to our house that day, and that's something you never forget. Knowing they remember us as well as Cindy meant the world. David, I could go on and on, but please encourage your elders to have classes as well as great uh, as guest speakers. To me, a grief seminar, this is interesting. A grief seminar is like a yearly gospel meeting. It gives you a lift to go on living. If I can help in any way, please call or write. And she signs. Do you realize that individuals that have had a significant loss in their life need a reason each year, help each year to go through it? I'm not going to take the time to read this letter, but it's written by a man in his late 60s, early 70s. He was a man's man. He runs several restaurants and owned a big cattle operation. He always could handle life until he lost his wife. If I read this, tears would be shed tonight. As a strong man says, I sat in the dining room alone tonight with all of the memories surrounding me and I have to admit for the first time in my life I'm no longer in control and I'm afraid. Friends, why is it that we believe loss is overcome in a matter of weeks when those that grieve tell us it's a matter of years. Why is it that we don't do a better job reaching out? I want to mention some of these, and I would love to be able to take the time to tell you why, but I do not have the time to tell you why, but trust me on this. If you think these are acceptable sayings, you need to study grief a little more before you go stand beside someone by the casket or you go to their house and you say things like this. And these are things that are commonly said. It's a good way to die. Remember, everything is God's will. All things work together for good to those who love God. Oh, your child is better off. He's gone to heaven. Count your blessings. If you look around, you'll always find someone worse off than you. You're so lucky. You had several wonderful years together. Well, just think of all your precious memories. Keep your chin up. You must put it behind you and get on with your life. If there's anything I can do, just let me know. You're young. You'll have plenty of time to make a new life for yourself. Time will heal. You did have insurance, didn't you? Friends, did you notice that most of those statements people say 
because they're trying to say something that will cause the person to get past their loss, to forget their loss. And if I could leave you with one fact tonight that I think is so misunderstood, when somebody is in the depths of their grief, they want someone to come and grieve with them because of the loss. Not try to convince them that they didn't have the loss or that the loss doesn't matter or that some way their life is going to be better than it's ever been. They just want someone to do exactly what God asked us to do. Weep with those who weep. There's nothing, Harley, that tears me up anymore when I'm in the room with someone that's grieving and one of their so-called friends comes by and visits with them and every time that individual tries to bring up the deceased, every time they try to tell something about the pain that they're feeling, that friend immediately interrupts and says, Wow, we've had some strange weather lately, haven't we? Strange how it's been sunshine and raining all in the same days. Well, yeah, we could talk about that, but let's go ahead and talk about something that's more positive. I want to urge you, if you don't want to grieve, don't go visit people that have had losses. Because you'll find those people feeling a lot like Job. Why do I have friends that treat me this way? Instead, I want to challenge all of us. Let's all make sure that we go as friends that's willing to grieve with those that's grieving. Support them in whatever way we can. And we close with Job 23. Look at Job 23 and we see the commitment. We could talk about many things of Job commitment, but let's close with this. You remember we began at the beginning how powerful uh, or how strong he was in the faith. He went through many trials and yet he comes out at the other end renewing his faith in God and is a stronger individual in the long run. Notice how all this is said in Job 23. Verse 8. Look, I go forward and he's not there, and backward, I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. That is the discussion of a man that's grieving. Job, where's God in all this? I don't know. I look behind me and I can't see God. I look in front of me and I can't see God. I look to the left and the right and I can't see God. Job, what do you know? By faith, I know this. He's putting me through a fire. I'm going through a test, but I'm going to come through like gold. I'm going to be refined. I'm going to be stronger. And notice as we read on two verses, my foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his ways and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job, tell us about this grief. He says, I want to be honest with you. I don't know where God is in all this, but I know where I want to be in all this. I want to stay with God because I trust Him, even though I don't understand it. I want to listen to His words. I want to treasure those in my heart. I want to stay with God. Friends, let's make sure that we sit in our heart tonight, in the depths of our heart, no matter what the dark night is, as we sang just a minute ago, the Lord will reign in us. Let's make sure that even when we can't understand it, we never lose our faith that the Almighty is looking over us. Tonight, let's leave here as individuals better 
supporters of those that are grieving. And let's leave here with a commitment that says, there's going to be a lot of things in my life that I don't understand, but I'm not going to leave God. If you haven't been baptized into Christ from this and your sins, won't you do that tonight? Or if you have and you've separated yourself from God, won't you come back to God tonight? The great God of all comfort. He can make our life better. He can give us an eternity. It's beyond our imagination.